welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today, I wanna talk about something that has been getting a lot of attention lately and is kind of rife with misinformation. That is the environmental impact of the Electrify Everything movement. This is something that a lot of climate folks have been really hesitant to talk about or even have been kind of defensive about because they don't want people talking as though renewables have the exact same impact as fossil fuels or this idea that they'll be even worse or that they're not an improvement. All of these are are talking points that several folks on the right are starting to push. You've got Ted Cruz wringing his hands about child labor in cobalt mines, for example. You've got a lot of pundits who carry water for the fossil fuel industry claiming that the land required for both mining and installing renewables, the materials required, all of that is going to be a bigger environmental problem than drilling for oil. That is not true. However, there are definitely impacts. And one of the key ways that we can minimize those impacts is to curb energy consumption across the board. We are at this moment right now that's very pivotal where the U.S. in particular is trying to plan out an energy transition. And instead of going, oh no, electric is great, we don't need to think about this stuff, it's actually the perfect time to figure out how to minimize the environmental impact of our energy system. One way to do that is to curb consumption. That is not something that any energy company wants to talk about. It's not something that most American capitalists want to talk about. (laughs) But it is absolutely necessary for systemically addressing the problem of climate change. I wrote about this recently in The Intercept, and for that piece, I interviewed a really interesting researcher on this subject, Thea Rio-Francos. She recently put out a report for the Climate and Community Project entitled Achieving Zero Emissions with More Mobility and Less Mining. That report concluded that even relatively small, pretty easy to achieve shifts in our behavior, like reducing the size of cars and their batteries, could deliver big returns. A 42% reduction in the amount of lithium needed in the US, even if the number of cars on the road and the frequency with which people drive stayed the same. I asked Rio Francos to talk me through her report and all of its very interesting findings. And that conversation is coming up after this quick break. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? 
The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and the Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm going to be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's going to be big, really big. If you want to know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 change makers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new dash York. I hope to see you there. I'm Thea Rio-Francos, and I'm an associate professor of political science at Providence College and also a member of the Climate and Community Project. Can I have you, and I know this is annoying because you just wrote an 80-plus page report on it, but can I have you just give kind of a, a brief summary of what this report is and kind of what you're putting forth in it? You know, maybe I'll start with like the origins of why we even thought to create this report because I think it it helps listeners understand like what the state of the kind of policy and academic conversation is on these topics and what some of the gaps are. So many years ago in early 2019, when I was first in Chile researching the social and environmental impacts of lithium mining there, and Chile is the world's number two producer of lithium, and also some of the kind of contentious politics around extraction of this mineral, I started to kind of think, you know, would it matter in terms of how much lithium was needed, how the sort of global energy transition is designed, or how the U.S. energy transition is designed, right? Are there futures in which less lithium and less of these other transition minerals are required than some of the most alarming kind of reports and predictions I began to see from the International Energy Agency and then the World Bank and multiple other forecasting agencies, which were and remain pretty alarming in terms of how much mining they are predicting will occur or be demanded. And I started to kind of look for that research. And at the same time, I was doing a lot of climate advocacy work, a lot of Green New Deal organizing. And so I was thinking a lot about an urgent and rapid and just energy transition in the U.S. But I was kind of thinking about both ends of the supply chain at once. Like here I am in Chile in the Atacama Desert, seeing these mining-related harms. And then there I go in the U.S. kind of advocating for a rapid transition. Like how do I align these two goals? And is there a way to kind of have a less extractive energy transition? And the answer was that that research didn't exist, at least not for the U.S. transportation sector, right? And each year that went on, you know, up until the present, up until the launch of our report, 
that research still didn't exist. I saw forecast after forecast that assumed basically a binary of the future, right? Either we stay with the fossil fuel status quo and the existential crisis that that is causing for the planet and all of its people, or we transition to an electrified, renewably powered future, but that doesn't really change anything about how these sectors or economic activities are organized, right? So it's, it's binary. It's either fossil fuel or kind of electrified version of the status quo. And there was very little research sort of in between those two or that mapped out or sort of broke down. Let's look at the electrified future and say that there are multiple ways to design it with implications for all sorts of things, including how quickly we advance towards our climate goals, including how equitably we do so, and including these kind of supply chain considerations that we also bring to the table in this report. So, you know, with that kind of frustration, but also that kind of continued curiosity about like, is there another path forward that's not currently being modeled? We set out to create that model and kind of actually have a data-driven analysis of the very different pathways, all of which are zero emissions, all of which are electrified, all of which are renewably powered, but vary tremendously in the specifics in ways that, as I said, have these kind of broader implications. And to combine that with more qualitative research on the harms of mining, on some of the supply chain bottlenecks and constraints that we see on the horizon, and to produce something that we hope is kind of useful to advocates across the supply chain, you know, whether it's climate, transit, folks that are concerned about mining impacts, whatever the issue at stake is, I think that there's a way to align them if we think holistically about the design of the energy transition. Yeah. Okay. And I think that one of the things that really jumped out to me in this report was, you know, again, like kind of along the lines of this binary that you're pointing out, I think people are often like, okay, we can either electrify cars or have fossil fuel cars and that's it. You know, there's been very little conversation about moving away from car dependency in general and and very little policy movement on that front. I feel like, you know, every once in a while, Elon Musk will like poo-poo the idea of public transit and we'll get a little bit of like a, a Twitter spat going about it. And like, there's, I don't know, there just hasn't been as much conversation about that as you might expect when we're talking about decarbonizing transport. So I'm wondering if I could have you kind of map out these three different or four different scenarios that you map in the report and kind of walk people through what would be required to to do each of those? I, I was really struck by the fact that like even if nothing else changes and we just have some policy around the size of EV batteries, for example, that would deliver a pretty major reduction in these impacts that you're talking about. So the way that we design our report, it is kind of interesting. And I think, again, it draws out these themes of connecting the dots kind of across the supply chain. We first kind of sketch out what are different possible zero emissions transportation futures. Like if we look ahead to the U.S. in 2050 and assume that our transportation is 100% without carbon emissions, what would that actually concretely look like? And we sketch out four different scenarios, again, all of which eliminate emissions, but they differ and in, in some cases pretty dramatically on a variety of parameters. So the first scenario, as you kind of suggested, 
and as I was hinting at earlier, just keeps everything the same except electrifies it, right? So we have the same patterns of car usage and car dependency and vehicle ownership. We also have the same kind of land use patterns of that suburban sprawl that itself incentivizes car use or even requires it. And so we change basically nothing about American society, built environment, infrastructure, but we swap out ICE vehicles for EVs. And we do so in a growing manner over time until we get to 2050. That's scenario one, electrified status quo. We have three others. And what they do is kind of progressively in a stepwise fashion, add in more changes. Some of them are not huge changes. Some of them are more dramatic. And so it gives us a real range. And and as I said, gets into the black box of electrification and opens it up and reveals it to be a whole host of choices, right? So in scenario two, what we look at is shifting mode share. And that's just a fancy technical term for what percentage of people are using what types of transportation for their trips. You know, am I using a bus or am I using a bike or am I, you know, which mode of transportation or am I using a car, right? And so we move people so that more of those trips are being taken in non-car options, but we still have cars. We still have EVs, but but we, we start to nudge people towards buses and cycling and walking, right? In the third scenario, We do more of that. So we do more of that mode shift towards transit, cycling, and walking. We also densify metropolitan regions, right? We see a lot of sprawl in ways that are very out of line with like the rest of the world. Like when we move, especially to the edges of a city or to those first ring suburbs and then out to the exurbs, like the distances just get really big. And we don't even have to go to rural areas to see those that sprawl or that distance. And so we densify things a bit so that the distances are shorter. And those changes also get accompanied by a decrease in how many people own vehicles, right? So that's scenario three, more of a mode shift, slightly denser metropolitan regions and lower levels of car ownership. Scenario four is like our turbocharged, in a positive sense, scenario, right? Our most ambitious one. We do all of those things, but more. We say like, you know, what if we really brought mode shares in line with like the places in the world where folks use like the most transit or cycle the most, right? What if we densify even more, right? Or bring vehicle ownership rates down even more, and I just want to flag that even in scenario four, there are lots of EVs, right? You know, and, I, and I'm aware of, you know, the debates around this topic, right? So I just want to flag that. We don't actually eliminate electric vehicles in any of our scenarios. We just play around with getting people to take trips through different modes, making those distances shorter, and discouraging car ownership, which yeah. tends to happen when there are other modes available and also when the distances are shorter. Right. Can you talk through what the obstacles to those kinds of shifts are? You know, what are the things stopping either the options being made available or people availing themselves of those options? Right. I might, if you don't mind, just slightly personalize this because I have experienced this firsthand where I know that in the U.S., and especially in, in auto industry advertising to consumers, cars are very associated with freedom, right? You know, this is like the American dream is like you drive anywhere, everyone owns their own car. But, you know, for me, when I look at the transportation system and also my own interaction with it in my own life, I experience this as like a lack of choices, like a lack of freedom, right? Like I have lived in places where it was not only not required, but actually more annoying to have a car than to use a bike or bus or or a subway or something else. And I now live in a place where the opposite is true. I live in a city, which is Providence, Rhode Island, but it's very hard 
to just live your daily life and be a full member of society without owning a car. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the first place where I got a driver's license. I think I was 31 or 32. In other places I lived, as I said, in the US and elsewhere in the world, it was just not a thing. You didn't have to own a car. I grew up in New York City, so I know I'm weird. But I more kind of just want to say that like, I moved to a place that again was an urban environment and there are buses and people, there are some bike lanes a little bit, but it, it was impossible for me to commute to work and to do the rest of my daily life stuff without a car. I had this exact experience. I lived in San Francisco and Oakland forever. And then I moved to the mountains and like, there's theoretically a bus, but it's like, there's like a two hour spectrum of time when it may or may not <laughs> so, you know, if you have like a normal job where you have to be anywhere at a particular time, that's not going to work for you. And that's the only option, you know? Yeah, I think that it's totally understandable to me that the vast majority of Americans use cars to get around because they live in contexts, even some urban contexts, but especially suburban and obviously especially rural contexts where they're really is no other option. And so I neither blame individuals for those choices, nor do I see our current transportation system as a paragon of freedom, right? Especially when we consider how financially burdensome cars are for poor and working class people, right? It's, it's a real, you know, it's just an expense and it's an, it's a set of annoyances of maintaining increasingly old cars and filling them with gas. That's increasingly expensive, right? Right. And, you know, there's a real affordability concern around electric vehicles, which obviously federal subsidies are meant to address. I don't oppose that, but I do think that it raises the question of, is there another path forward not that fully eliminates electric vehicles. I don't see that as feasible in any like near or medium term, but that kind of gives them the right proportion in a broader transportation system that involves other options and other possibilities for people to move around that are more equitable, more affordable, maybe even free. If we look into experiments and like the fare free buses popping up in some cities Mm -hmm. that are more active, like biking and walking and, and good for physical and mental health in that way. You know, there's a whole host of benefits mm-hmm. that accompany just, again, not eliminating cars, but bringing them down to size and having other modes of transportation available to people and sort of creating different types of streetscapes and land uses around that. Yeah. Like, what are the forces that are pushing against that? Because I, I feel like most people, average Americans, are like yeah, it would be great if I had a cheap and easy way to get around. Yeah, it's a lot of kind of political and economic interactions at a variety of of scales of our, you know, government and economy, right? I mean, I think that we could go back in the early 20th century and look at what were some critical decisions that were made that kind of put us on this path-dependent which has got, of course, like much exacerbated in the sort of post-World War boom and the sort of great acceleration in the 1970s, right? We could look at all these critical moments where it's often a confluence of lobbying efforts by some combination of the fossil fuel or auto industry, in some cases specifically to dismantle what prevailed in a prior era of like streetcars in downtown urban areas, right? That were in some cases eliminated to make more room for cars or to make wider avenues. You know, the neighborhoods that were destroyed by highways, the whole emergence and very high levels of government investment in the interstate highway system, the sort of declining investment, mm-hmm. on the other hand, for public transit authorities and for the commuter rail systems. And let's not even get into Amtrak sort of state of affairs, right? So, you know, 
I don't have a conspiratorial worldview, though. Sometimes it can be tempting, right? But there are a lot of decisions that took place at relatively high levels of power, authority, and sort of financial investment and resource allocation that in combination and at critical junctures of U.S. history where we see these inflection points that kind of both put us initially on a path of car dependency and then reinforce that over time. And my concern, and just to sort of close this point out, is that we are at such a critical juncture, you know, between the sort of escalating climate crisis and the ways that that is destabilizing people around the world and in the United States, right, on the one hand. And on the other hand, this exciting and very important opportunity to totally change the energetic foundations of the world, right? Like to move away from fossil fuels once and for all and to go, you know, to to power our societies through renewable energy. But we're at a critical juncture in terms of specifically how that renewable energy transition is designed, who the winners and losers are, what decisions made around certain trade-offs, right, in in the sort of policy and, and resource decisions. So I'm worried that this moment, which could, if we think about it critically, organize around it and advocate for it, maybe put us on a slightly less car-dependent path, right, and use this as a moment to create a different kind of infrastructure of transportation, will instead reinforce not only car dependency itself, but with the idea that like EVs as an individual technology are the panacea, right? But but actually reinforce some of the worst trends within a car dependent status quo. And I specifically am thinking about gargantuan cars with gargantuan batteries, which actually take us further away from climate goals. Right. Which we're seeing like an explosion of in the last year or so. I feel like it's like the EV truck and the uh, just so many of the Super Bowl ads last year were for these like oversized EVs. And I was like, right. oh God, why? There are reasons, terrible reasons, bad reasons, like bad faith reasons and more understandable reasons that this trend is happening. And it is a real trend. We currently, U.S. average battery sizes for electric vehicles are like double where they were a decade ago and also double like the global average. And so they're really on their own path right now. They are just getting larger and larger. All of those also, it's worth noting, the larger the battery, the more raw materials. And we'll get into in a moment, like what our findings were with different, you know, how much lithium would be required by these different scenarios. But, you know, definitely larger battery means more lithium and more of anything else that goes into that battery. It also, by the way, means more expensive. I think the e-hummer is like $110,000. It's so expensive that it doesn't even qualify for the IRA subsidies, which max out at 80,000 for an ESUV. So they're not affordable. They're very heavy. Mm-hmm. They're even heavier than the equivalent like like a gas guzzler SUV because the battery is so heavy, which poses safety risks to pedestrians and other drivers. So there's like, they're wrong on all counts. The real reason I think they're being pushed is because the auto industry has a massive need for new financial investment in retooling all of its factories to be to create EVs instead of ICE vehicles. And they want a profitable sales item. And mm-hmm. as we know, just like with gas guzzling SUVs, ESUVs have really like wide profit margins. 
margins. Like they're, they're really profitable compared to more compact cars. So that's their obvious interest. And then they sell this as consumers are demanding it. Now that's less clear to me because of how tightly connected consumer preferences are with fossil fuel and auto industry advertising. But, you know, to the extent that consumers want these, I think, you know, there are different reasons we could get into sort of like toxic masculinity stuff, but to just put that aside, like, I think the most valid reason that a consumer would want a large vehicle, aside from if they're like a construction contractor or something, is that they're concerned about range, right? They, Right. They think a larger battery is true we'll get them more range. We'll get them two, 300 miles, right? On, on a charge. And we have a really insufficient charging network in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that that is real, especially for folks, again, in those really sprawly rural and suburban areas and exurbs where, you know, you might be going long distances between a charging station. Right. Of course, most folks are are taking really short trips on average. but So it's more of a mental anxiety than a sort of real one, if that makes sense. But, right. you know, the way we address that is through thinking about charging stations, through thinking also about density and the distances that folks are sometimes traveling, rather than filling that gap with an e-hummer which is just not a rational way to, to fill that that social need. Right. Do you feel like the automotive lobby and industry kind of in general gets less attention than the fossil fuel guys in all of this? And is that fair? I see so much more on the oil companies, but that's also because of the work I'm doing. So I'm just, I don't know if, if it seems to you like there's an adequate amount of attention on the way that the automotive industry works to shape policies and market preferences and all of that kind of stuff. I don't think there is enough. And it's a really important industry to look at both historically and its role. And as I said, lobbying to dismantle other transportation options. Mm -hmm. So we should have that critical historical lens and how deeply intertwined its interests have been with the fossil fuel industry and fossil capital, right? So that's another lens, right? Sort of approximate to your own work. And then on the other hand, how they, alongside mining companies, some of which, by the way, are like coal companies too. I mean, these, these mega mining companies mine in multiple sectors, including in fossil fuel sectors. Right. And so now mining companies and auto companies are, are literally, and this is no exaggeration, you can go to any of their websites, investor relation communiques, you know, press releases, and see how they're setting themselves up as like climate saviors. Like the auto industry with the mining industry is mm-hmm. going to save us from the climate crisis that in a deep way, the mining industry qua its role in fossil fuel extraction and the auto industry as like the main consumer good, aside from the power sector that uses fossil fuels, like these are the culprits, not the saviors. Right. And I don't think we should be designing an energy transition or envisioning one in which these two industries have as large and sort of strategic roles as they currently do. And we should be sort of thinking about like, you know, again, what were the causes of the climate crisis? What would a society, a zero emission society look like that's equitable and just? And like, what role then should technologies like lithium batteries, electric vehicles, and the mine materials that furnish them play in that, right? Rather than kind of assume, as I worry that some, you know, colleagues in the climate sort of world are, are doing, is that any new lithium mine built is like climate action, or any EV sold is climate action. Right. When we know that some many people buying EVs, it's their third car, and we don't even know if it's replacing the use of their gas. I mean, the data is still in progress there, right? But it's not it's not the same to buy an EV as to bring down emissions, right? We have to evaluate those separately and see how they relate to one another. Yeah. While I'm absolutely in favor of electrifying transportation, 100%, and EVs are going to play a role there, I just think we need to disentangle. Like, our goal is 
is confronting the climate crisis and politically confronting the and economically confronting the actors that caused it. Mm-hmm. And that should be our kind of horizon and our framework for what specific policies or practices we advocate for. Yeah. The thing I kind of come back to over and over again is that just replacing the energy source is not ever going to be enough. There needs to be a different decision-making framework. We can't keep evaluating decisions in the context of how little change does this require of people or how little change does this require of companies or whatever. And you mentioned Chile before. One of the things that I've been looking at is rights of nature as Mm. sort of an an example of a different type of decision-making framework that just prioritizes different things than Mm you know, corporate profits or, you know, lack of discomfort for consumers. I'm curious what you think about the shift that is happening in some Latin American countries towards that and whether it is one of the ways that people could start to look at, okay, what does a different decision-making framework look like? For sure. No, I'm so glad you asked about that because I think that, you know, first of all, in and of itself, it's a very interesting legal innovation that's been adopted, as you said, in several Latin American countries in constitutions in ordinary law and regulations and increasing numbers of court cases that have been won on nature's behalf. And so it's, it's a whole interesting topic in and of itself. But just to zoom out a little bit, you know, I think that I'm a little biased in terms of both uh, family background and also my research area being Latin America for so long. But I do think Latin America really shows some of the most both harmful, but also progressive and just and innovative, like instantiations of of both extractive sectors and of of potential ways that humans and nature can relate to one another. Like the whole range is there, like, you know, just to make it really stark, like, on the one hand, Latin America is the most dangerous place in the world to be a water or environmental defender, right? To be someone who is defending their access to clean air, to their livelihoods, to culturally sensitive territory against the encroachment of whether it's attractive sectors or the mm-hmm. agribusiness sector. Both of those are are pretty culpable here. It mm-hmm. is extremely dangerous to be an activist and people get killed every year doing just that, right? Engaging in forms of civil disobedience, right? So on the one hand, it's an extremely dangerous place to engage in this protest. On the other hand, it's the place where we see, and these are probably in some ways not unrelated facts, like some of the most militant inspiring forms of protest against fossil fuels, against extractive industries more broadly, mining, et cetera, against, you know, large-scale hydroelectric dams, you know, a whole host of projects that have been seen to be harmful to people or environments. People are willing to fight over them, right? And also, you know, whether it's direct action or whether it's in the electoral arena and electing people that, that hold these values or, you know, whether it's rewriting constitutions and ratifying them. And so, you know, we just see a very contentious, both on the harmful end and on the inspiring end, kind of political economy of extraction in Latin America. And I think this is more relevant than it seems, not just because Latin America is sort of close by and we share a hemisphere. And so we should think about, you know, what's happening south of us, let's say, but, but also because, you know, as the US, Canada, a bunch of European countries are wanting to onshore mining, so-called critical minerals mining, you know, for strategic purposes, right? We want to make sure we have lithium at home, close to home, and we build these supply chains at home instead of being reliant on, you know, foreign entities of concern. I think that's the language that's used federally for for China and, and, and other countries that have large roles in these supply chains, right? So there's this desire on the part of policy elites to onshore a lot of mining, right? 
I like to refer to this map that the Center for Biological Diversity Nevada director, Patrick Donnelly, maintains of lithium mining in Western states. And he's mapped like 110 projects at some level of like permitting or financing across just the Western part of the United States, just the Western states, right? 110, just lithium, right? Not all the critical minerals and not all the states in the country. And of course, some of these mines will never happen. They'll encounter a regulatory hurdle or a financial hurdle, but it's a lot of projects, right? And so as the U.S. is kind of scrambling, the U.S. government, I should say, and to some extent, you know, corporations as well are kind of scrambling and saying like, we want to do all this mining here. And GM just literally invested hundreds of millions of dollars directly into a lithium mining project in Nevada. So this is the mining industry, auto industry relationship is getting very close now. You know, as that's happening, it's going to spark conflicts that don't look that different from conflicts in Latin America. They're often going to involve indigenous peoples, not exclusively, but in many cases they do. They're often going to involve concerns about groundwater, about were we properly consulted? Did we give our consent? And these are exactly the structural conflicts in in Latin America. And you'll see this, you know, similar opposing arguments like mining will bring jobs, mining is good for national security, you know, et cetera, right? So that kind of whole gamut of the way the politics of mining plays out to sort of see how that has happened in Latin America, where which mm-hmm. contains some of the top producers of X, you know, X or Y mineral in the world, right? Chile is also the number one copper producer, right? right. I think shows us not exactly our future, but does show us what a society looks like that is riven over conflicts over extraction, which is maybe not how we think about the energy transition, right? Because obviously the energy transition involves moving away from the enormous volumes of extraction for fuel, right? And that's important. And, And many a climate advocate will rightfully point out that the amount of coal and gas and oil mined in our current energy system just is so much bigger than the amount of critical minerals mining that will take place over the next few decades. And that is a true and correct. But I think just saying that does not really tell us very much about how the politics and social conflicts and divides around the mining that will happen during the energy transition are going to play out. And just saying that fact doesn't actually wrestle with the environmental, social, or even geopolitical and economic kind of impacts and and dilemmas posed by the mining that's to come, you know, at the same time that we know that overall it's like less extraction from the earth and a system that constantly extracts for the purposes of fuel. Right. That's such a good point. Okay. So can I have you just recap some of your, your high level findings in, in this modeling? Yeah, thanks for asking that. And I'm going to go to the most dramatic finding just because I think it it shows the full range of possibility ahead of us, right? It sort of nicely arrays like the sort of worst and best case scenarios. So if we go to the year 2050, our model models zero emission transportation, what that would require in terms of lithium mining from now to 2050. But if we just take that snapshot year of 2050 and we look at lithium demand, our worst case scenario to our best case scenario is a 92% difference. So if we just take the year 2050, this future that we're looking at is zero emissions transportation sector. Our worst case scenario is we maintain current levels of car dependency, car usage. Cars have this outsized kind of share of overall transportation modes. Vehicle ownership rates remain like the same as they are now. And we also get continue on this trend of bigger and bigger batteries, right? That are getting more and more out of step with like global averages. That's our worst case scenario. Things get kind of actually worse, but electrified. 
And our best case scenario is we bring battery sizes back to a sort of reasonable size. We expand how many folks are using buses or cycling. We densify our suburbs a bit. We have maximum levels of recycling and recovery that are technically feasible. That second future is 92% less lithium than the first future. And I know that the ambitious future is probably beyond the realm of what feels politically possible right now. And I understand Mm -hmm. that, you know, I am not like living in the clouds. I'm aware of that. But I think that having that option on the table, because in that most ambitious future, we totally eliminated emissions and everyone has a way to get around, right? We're not denying anyone mobility Mm -hmm. and we're not falling short of our climate goals. And we could have that future and use a lot less lithium and then have all these other amazing co-benefits of reducing car usage. Right. And then I want to throw out one other finding. I'm going to go for a drama right now, right? Because you can get into the granular findings where we have in-between levels of X, Y, and Z. Another finding that I really like, just because it it addresses folks who are understandably concerned that like, there is no America without car dependent. You know, we can't move away from being car dependent. We just have to suck it up. And I say to those people, we could stay in scenario one, which is the one where we keep levels of car usage and vehicle ownership rates, and we don't densify anything, and we have lots of sprawl. We could stay in scenario one, and we could just bring our batteries to like the right size, or not this gargantuan size. And in 2050, we could use 42% less lithium with the same amount of cars and the same amount of car usage and vehicle ownership if we just make the batteries a more normal size, like rather than the super size. And we're talking about like normal, like completely competitive with everybody else's battery size. It's not a smart car. You know, those tiny European cars. I'm not, you know, I'm not even going there because I, again, I know my audience. I know my limits of what I can suggest. So no, we're talking about the Nissan Leaf or we're talking about what people drive in Berlin or whatever. I mean, meaning our peer nations in wealthy global cities around the world, like what are people driving if they do drive? And that's the battery size I'm talking about. Yeah, that is incredible. And also like quite hopeful and achievable. You know, I think that if people are like, oh, come on, that the fact that there's this option on the table that really doesn't require, you know, a heavy lift that would deliver 42% less lithium is pretty incredible. Awesome. All right. I'm going to link to the report in the show notes and encourage people to go read it because it like it did actually, I don't know, whenever I read reports like this, I'm like, oh, okay, like there is actually a way to do it. Because I think that a lot of times that's where people get stuck is like, okay, but how on earth would we ever do it? And you've mapped it out here, which is very helpful. (laughs) I'm so glad. And as I said, like such a fan, I've like assigned my students the drilled podcast from the beginning. Cause like when I I teach on the politics of oil and stuff. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled to chat with you and hope it happens again sometime. Drilled is an original Critical Frequency production. Our producer is Sarah Ventry. Sound design, mixing, and mastering are by Peter Duff, who also wrote our original score. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. And the show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. Amy Westervelt.